So you're saying to yourself, yo, sir, dude, I wanted to see Kevin Smith in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but the motherfucker sold out. Well, after I shed a tear for you, I highly recommend bookmarking csmod.com. That's the place on the worldwide interwebs to see all upcoming Smodco shows, updated with linky links to Tiki Tickets. Say it with me, baby. csmod.com. Nice. Ooh, I just got a little hard there. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Suzanne ran away with the circus When she was 43 Misses her kids occasionally As she swings on her trapeze but she doesn't miss washing dishes As she flies through the air With the breeze in her hair Devil may care Cause you can't have everything Miss her family more 
She let go, fell to the floor, and she'll never like washing dishes. But at night, when no one's there, she'll feel the breeze in her hair. Devil may care, 'cause you can't have everything. That is Carrie Cooper, C A R Y Cooper. You can find her stuff uh, at CarrieCooper.com, of course. Where else? Uh, that's called Suzanne, which I need to play that song for Suzanne Wong because she needs to hear that. Uh, so, the great story of how I met Carrie. I have these parties at my house. I call them the Polymind Hangs. You guys know all about Polymind because I've told you all about it. But anyway, so we have these great Friday night parties and a lot of musicians come. And Eric Schwartz, who comes here, who I also play Eric's stuff uh, a lot on here, a Better Man and uh, Keep Your Jesus Off My Penis, two very extremes of Eric Schwartz's music. So Eric's got a friend named Carrie Cooper, and she's we live right by LAX, and so she's going to the airport or coming back, or, or, or her plane got canceled. That's what it was. So she had like five hours to kill. And he's like, well, come to my friend's house. She's having a party tonight. And so she comes by. And it's just so cool. And uh, Eric says, oh, my friend Suzanne, uh, my friend Carrie also plays uh, music. Can she play a little something? I'm like, yeah, sure. And she pulls out this ukulele and she sings that song. And I was like standing there going, I love my life. I love that people just come to my house and show up and whip out their ukulele and sing shit like that. So cool. So I'm so excited and happy to play Carrie's music here. And yes, hello. Yay. More new music. See, I'm getting around to it. It's February. It's official. The year has started. I have finally started doing my work again. Speaking of work, uh, interesting week for me. Monday, Tuesday, I could barely get out of bed. I wasn't sick. I was just, I don't know. It's just having one of those things, depressed, uh, needing to hide from the world, wanting to be in the cave. Not quite sure why, why it was, why I'm, why is it worth living? You know, that kind of a thing. Not too dark, but just not wanting to face the world. Really happy to stay in my sweats and read my book and watch Law and Order episodes and skiing, World Cup skiing. I've become addicted to World Cup skiing. Anyway been hanging out anyway. And then uh, yesterday morning. Oh, and I knew that my new show, the Kelly Carlin show is going to be premiering this Sunday. Uh, so maybe I don't know, I was just like getting ready for that or something in some way. So when, yesterday morning, I wake up and New York is calling Sirius XM is calling and saying, um, hi, could you um, would you mind talking to the New York Times today about your show? And I was like, Oh, I think this is worth showering for and getting out of bed and putting on real clothing. Not that the New York Times can see what I'm wearing on the other end of the phone, but damn it, uh, it felt like it was worth uh, living again for. Like really, like I need the New York Times to call in order to feel like I need to worth living. 
Anyway, very exciting. Oh my God, you guys, I can't even begin to tell you. And I'm trying not to like get my ego too wrapped up into it or anything. But you know, you also have to learn to enjoy the good shit when it comes your way, because there are months and months and years that go by where we all know no good shit comes in. And it's a struggle and it's difficult and it's dark. And I know some of you might have this idea that like, oh, she's George Carlin's daughter. Her life is per- perfect. <laughs> That's very cute of you to think that. But no, Uh you know, I struggle, I have my own issues, I have uh, problems like everyone else, you know, economic problems, psychological problems, problems with my pets shitting in the house, you know, all sorts of regular things. So, um, so I'm trying not to let like my life revolve around this. But at the same time, I have to tell you, I'm pretty damn excited. And so it was it came out today, on the arts and culture blog, and it'll be in the actual paper tomorrow. And they use my great Dan Dion picture, which I love. And uh, so uh, that happened yesterday. And then uh, and then yesterday afternoon, I went and got to hang out with Yunk, Yungar, I think that's his name. And he's the Young Turk on current TV. And he has another show called The Point. And it's a web series. And I got to be on a panel like a Bill Maher type of show. And so I got to be all makeup and put on TV and do that. And then this afternoon, these lovely gentlemen came to my house. And right now they're shooting a documentary. They just shot B-roll of us on the podcast here. So all of you guys who are listening right now live are actually going to be in the documentary too in some weird, ethereal, spiritual way. And so I don't know, my head's just, I don't know, I don't have any hats big enough for my head today. Um, and I know I'm just going to crash. It's going to be such a gnarly crash when I come down off of this high. You know, between the Diet Coke and the New York Times, I'm out of control today, people. I am, I'm doing a Belushi. I am. The Diet Coke is really, and it's not even Diet Coke. It's Coke Zero. I don't know if that's worse or better, or I don't know. Um, and God bless John Belushi's soul. Uh, God, why did he have, why do any of these guys die? I don't understand. I'm so glad my dad didn't die. Well, he did, but not in that way. Oh, this is getting all so strange, this conversation. So I'm really excited about my Sirius XM show. It's this Sunday. It's on Raw Dog, Sunday p.m. Sunday p.m. Sunday 7 p.m. on Raw Dog Radio. My first guest is Robin Williams. Robin and I had an amazing conversation, uh, kind of like the conversations we have here. But now they're on Sirius XM. And no, it's not going to be podcasted. It's not how they do it there. You're going to have to pony up and go online and plunk down the 10 bucks a month to hear my show. But the good news is, is you get about 500 other channels. And the Raw Dog Comedy channel is amazing. And the music channels are amazing. The Loft is great. Coffee House, um, all the alt music stuff, the blues, the standards, those music ones are great. And, uh, Oh, and there's Carlin's Corner, Channel 400. That's like my dad 24-7. So that's pretty cool, too. And my show will also be on that, uh, actually uncut in, in its entirety. Whereas on Raw Dog, it'll be me talking to Robin, and then we'll cut away to different comedy clips and stuff and and different conversations. So um, there's all of that. And uh, what else is going on this week? Well, we finished with my life. We've done all of that. Um, oh, uh, there's of course, uh, <laughs> the GOP, which is just, isn't it fun to watch? Uh, you know, they thought it was like, okay, we've all settled down. We're all getting behind Romney now. And then Santorum goes and wins these little, you know, whatever they're called 
not actual primaries, but the other things that I'm blanking on because, as you know, I have no brain left. Um, uh, caucuses. Thank you. And, uh, and he goes and wins these caucuses and I just love it. I love that it's all up in the air and they can't figure it out and all the people in charge don't know what to do these days. Uh, and that's kind of scary too, because, you know, being a kid, you want people in charge to know what they're doing, but they don't anymore. And so we're in charge. That's kind of exciting. Uh, and really scary. <laughs> as, as my friend said to me the other night, we're the grownups now. And I'm thinking, really? We're the grownups? Oh dear. That's, I really feel like I'm 17 still. I cannot believe I'm going to be 49 years old this year. That's impossible. That's 49 years is, is way too long to be on the planet and still be as confused as I feel that I am inside. Uh, and yet, here I am. And those were our, uh, the creaking of the door. If you could hear that, don't know if you could, but that was the documentary. Nice guys leaving. They're doing a documentary about stand up comedy and performance and what it's like to perform stand up comedy. And of course, I've never performed stand up comedy. So I'm like looking at them like, really? I'm not quite sure why you're here. But I talked about performing, which was good enough. Uh, boy. Yeah. You know, I think I need a nap and I can't have a nap because uh, I have a really, really great guest today, but we're not quite ready for her. Uh, what there was something else I was going to mention. I didn't have time today to do my full notes because, you know, oh, I had to do my taxes today too. That's, don't you hate that when you know the tax appointments coming up? I don't know if you guys go like do your own taxes or not. Um, but my husband and I, we own a corporation because he's a DP and we've got to do all the production stuff through that. So we can't just do it them ourselves. So we have to go to the guy. And oh, I have to tell you about my accountant. So his name is Sam Moses. He's an amazing accountant because he actually used to work for the IRS. So he knows all the red flags. So he's great. But the thing about going to an appointment with Sam Moses is that it becomes a pitch meeting. Because Sam is going to pitch you now reality shows. I don't know what it is. First of all, he thinks that he himself should have a reality show. And I'm thinking he should because let me tell you, this guy does not look like the average accountant. He wears um, snakeskin cowboy boots and like a bolo tie, but he's got like longish kind of hair and a mustache and a little beard and total caricature, total caricature. And um, But actually, we came up with a funny idea for a reality show today, which is it's not the real housewives of dot dot dot. It's the surreal housewives of dot dot dot. And I'm not quite sure where which housewives we'd picked. But do we really care if it's the surreal housewives? Um, and then I thought of I thought I thought, we should do the housewives of Saturday Night Live. And I think we should just go back in time different generations everywhere from like Lorraine and Jane, all the way to the cast members that have just left recently and pick about, you know, what is it? I think it's six or seven of them on these shows and just kind of follow them. And, you know, we do the LA ones, the ones that live in LA and follow their kind of quote unquote ordinary lives of the SNL ladies. And uh, I don't know. I think we should pitch Lauren. I think we need to call Lauren Michaels um, right away. Of course, I don't think he'll take my calls because my dad said very nasty things about him in his memoir. <laughs> and so I really fear the day when I, I'm i assuming I'll be somewhere and someone will introduce me to Lauren Michaels and go, hey, yeah, you, this is Kelly Carlin, you know, George Carlin's daughter. And I'll just be like, hi, yeah, my dad did not respect you at all. This will be awkward moment. But um I don't have a relationship with Lauren Michaels. I don't know if I respect him or not. Um, 
Uh, he's a brilliant man. Clearly, he created an, an institution. He's got a great comedic mind um, and continues to. I mean, Portlandia is another one of his shows that, you know, all obviously knows what he's doing. And yet, uh, I guess my dad didn't feel like he was treated well. Well, daddy was sensitive at times. Believe it or not, he was a very sensitive man. He was. Um so yeah, that'll be interesting. I have no idea. Oh, the Saturday Night Live women. That's how I got. So my accountant. So we go to the taxes and you know what? It was okay because, uh, we made barely any money last year. <laughs> that's the big fear. See that that's the, that's the catch 22 is you have a really good year and you're, and you're an S corp. So you're not paying in the estimated taxes like you should because you know, you just don't. Um, and, uh, yeah, you have a really good year and you realize, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to come up with like $12,000 or whatever at the end of the year, which you don't have because you don't really have cash flow unless you're doing really, really well. Fine. But we didn't do really, really well last year. So we, you know, we, we had a kind of okay year. Um, so I think we're going to be okay because my husband also gets paychecks through shows that he works on, not through the corporation. You guys are really learning a lot about my money today. I don't know why. Um, so we'll be fine. But, uh, so the good news is we don't have to pay a lot of taxes. The bad news is we didn't make enough money. <laughs> oh, the strange joy of the 21st century. Okay. Uh, I think there's enough of that people. Uh, I'm going to play some more music here. What should I play now? No, no. Oh, I don't want to play that. Shit. I just opened up the wrong thing. Don't you hate when you open up the wrong thing on your desktop and you're like, no, I really didn't want to open that. Sorry. Sorry, computer. I know I've confused you and now you're mad at me. Okay. Uh, this is going to be a very different song than what I played before, but this is not a new person, but I haven't played him in a while because I just realized that I didn't have his music in my stack here. And his name is Ryan, uh, Kickland. And, uh, I think Logan, uh, you're going to enjoy this song because it's called the bitter songwriter. Uh, here's Ryan Kickland. <laughs> songwriters go Where did all the songwriters go I can't take one more song about a teenage love gone wrong or the stupid shit that happens at the mall Where did all the songwriters go Where did all the songwriters go I know you're feeling down that your father wasn't around you're a man now, quit crying and move on Where did all the songwriters go? Where did all the songwriters go? As much as I love hearing about your bitches and your cars and your money It's gone a bit too far Where did all the songwriters go? Where did all the songwriters go? Does anyone out there even seem to really care That this formulaic garbage fills the air? Where did all the songwriters go? Where did all the songwriters go? Hell, we still got wars, we ain't feeding our own poor But everybody's heard it all where did all the songwriters go? 
where did all the songwriters go? Maybe I'm just bitter cause I'm drinking all alone And I'm singing in the basement of my home That was uh, Ryan Kickland. You can hear uh, get his music at ryankickland.com. Uh, I thought that was a nice little uplifting song about being a bitter songwriter. <laughs> Something a little tasty for your evening. Uh, I'm very excited to have my guest. My guest uh, is an award-winning comedian, writer, host of a popular podcast, uh, Sex and Other Human Activities. She also has another podcast, a YouTube podcast, uh, something to do with a bathtub. We're going to talk about that. Um, she's uh, Her comedy has been praised by CNN, The Guardian, New York Times. She's sexy. She's funny. And she's got a new book coming out next week called Agora Fabulous. And I'm very, very excited to welcome Sarah Benincasa. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really stoked to be here. I'm like totally stoked in a rad way also. Awesome. I wish I were um, just in California with you hanging out because I, I just I wish I were in California most of the time. <laughs> so um, I wish we were, we were there hanging out. But thanks for having me on. Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, very excited. I got your book a few months ago and devoured it in a weekend. Oh, great. Uh, yes. Uh, it just, <laughs> there's something that, first of all, you're a fantastic writer, period. Like, thank you. Really beautiful writing, fan, just great turns of phrases and, uh, descriptions. I mean, really good, meaty, lovely stuff. Make me laugh out loud. And, and of course, your book is about your, journey, I love that word journey because it's mm-hmm. so important, your journey from a basket case. <laughs> yeah, I would say from from non-functioning basket case to relatively functioning basket case. Yeah. See, now I, li- <laughs> I like that. Yes, because I feel like a pretty much functioning, you know, relatively well functioning basket case. But I think we all do. And I think that's the beauty. And that's why I think your book is so beautiful and important because, um, you know, we all have these things going on inside of us. And a lot of us have a lot of voices that tell us a lot of things in our head. And you exposed yourself and shared with us. And I think that's really brave of you. Thank you. Well, I think that um, and I don't know if you subscribe to this philosophy, but I kind of have a feeling that you do or you might at least agree with it. I feel like a one great way, the best way I know, but it's certainly just one great way to deal with the darkness is to laugh at it because there are demons that live there. And I think when we laugh at it, we shed light on them and then they get very small and turn into cuddly pets <laughs> and, and then we can sell them <laughs> in book, podcast, film or other form. A- a- absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, those little nasty demons, uh, their job is to make you afraid and cower in the corner thus the agoraphobia. And uh, when you laugh at them, they really don't know what to do, don't do they? 
Yeah, they lose their shit and they um, they all of a sudden get smaller and smaller and sprout fur and suddenly they just look like adorable, cuddly creatures. <laughs> and that's like how I like to picture it. It's taken me a long time to evolve that weird image. Um, but but that's that's really how I like to look at it. Other times I've thought about, you know, laughing into the abyss. Um, mm. I, I just think it's so healing. Humor is so healing. And if you can laugh at at something in a way that does not devalue the experience for other people i i think that you know i think it would be a mistake if i laughed at agoraphobia like um like everybody who has agoraphobia is an asshole they're dumb right <laughs> rather rather than uh as long as the the mocking is like self deprecating rather than mocking people who who have whatever the issue is, I think it's fine to laugh at it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things uh, I know as a person who had agoraphobia and had panic attack disorder is that everything felt so serious and life and death. Like you know, leaving the house or going in my car and driving across town was. The, you know, there was, there was no laughing at it. There, there was no ability to step outside and laugh at it. And, um, so I think that really is a sign of mental health then to be able to laugh at yourself. Yeah. I, I think that, um, a lot of mental illness, whether it is brought on by nature or nurture is, um, and this sounds like kind of a, a simplistic way of describing it, but is what we're talking about is a loss of perspective. So someone is going through, and this doesn't, I'm not saying this as in, whoa, if that person having an acute schizophrenic episode just had some perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but like, let's talk about that person having that acute, you know, schizophrenic episode. Um, they, they have a skewed perspective. They believe very strongly that all the things that are happening inside and, and to them outside their heads are are real and um they've lost perspective they can't stand outside themselves like we can and say oh no those are you know that's an auditory hallucination it's a visual hallucination (laughs) like so sometimes your brain just takes away your ability to have that normal healthy human perspective on things and I, i think that um i i mean i always feel everybody can can look at somebody else and go oh they had it worse and i always feel lucky that um that the, you know, suicidal depression and anxiety and agoraphobia that I've experienced, uh, that I always had people who had perspective who were able to tell me like, no, that's, that's not real. No, that's not there. It feels real to you, but it's not actually real right now. And I'm also glad that I never, I've never had, um, visual hallucinations, which I'm super glad for. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. really happy about that. Absolutely. So do you, have you been able to pinpoint like what was the, I mean, was it a series of things that triggered this for you and then just snowballed or is, was there something that really like traumatized or freaked you out or? Um, no, I think it was overall, it's not, for me, it's not trauma related. I think it is a, a general fear of loss of control gone out of control. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's a fear of loss of control really realized. And, um, I mean, a lot of people in my family have panic attacks and depression. And so that is all very, has been very common for quite a few generations. I can trace back, I think, um, three generations. I can trace back to my wow. great grandparents generation to people who had to deal with different aspects of mental illness and 
in some cases were um, were treated and in some cases were not treated. And it's really rife on both sides of my family tree. So I have this kind of genetic loading for it. And um, I, I don't it's not at all a, a coincidence, I think, that I exhibited some of that stuff starting when I was about you know, I was a little kid starting when I was like eight, nine, ten, but then it really flowered when I was in adolescence, which, you know, is, is often true, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When the hormones start shifting and the body chemistry goes wackadoodle anyway. Oh, uh, yeah. You're fucking crazy anyway. <laughs> it's true. And then on top of it, you know, you are afraid to leave the house. Yeah. 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 So for you, when, um, What's the earliest incident that you remember, like choosing, like, I'm not going anywhere anymore. Like, that's like, that's not an option for me. This is much easier to just stay here. I can remember being really little and being in, I was probably eight, nine, 10, somewhere in there and being in a bathroom stall and just deciding. And I was, I was feeling sick and uncomfortable and I just deciding I'm, I can't leave. I can't leave this bathroom stall or else something bad will happen. And that was a scenario that's been repeated many times in my life. There's a lot of bathroom issues. And, uh, <laughs> How Freudian a, of you. A very scatological life. Yeah. Something I must have gotten like hit in the head with a toilet plunger or something. <laughs> but there's definitely this feeling of I, I can't leave. I don't want to be here. But I, I can't, I cannot leave here or else something very terrible will happen. So obviously completely irrational. And, um, so that, you know, I remember that. I remember that. And I also remember being just, uh, there are so many different car rides, train rides, plane rides that I can remember starting when I was around, you know, eight, nine, 10. And going into, I mean, I, I started, you know, puberty when I was 11. So I guess I was in the, the prepubescent phase at that point. And, um, and just feeling a lot of terror and a lot of shame and, and calling it pretending I, not pretending, but saying I was sick because I didn't know what else to call it. Yes. Yes. You know, did you, how old were you? Do you remember when you first started, you know, exhibiting some kind of like panicky tendencies? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I didn't really have my first like full blown panic attack until my early twenties. And it was right before I was going to do an acting gig. My dad was doing a pilot for HBO and, um, we were in rehearsals and I had this panic attack in the car. And I remember calling my doctor and him saying, Oh, that's a panic attack. And I'm like, no, I'm having a heart attack. I'm pretty much convinced I'm having a heart attack. And he's like, no, you're not. You're having a panic attack. Um, but I was a very clingy little kid, uh, very young. I remember. Going, my mom decided to put me in preschool, Montessori. I think I was about four and a half, five, whatever that preschool, kindergarten age is. And, um, I clung to my teacher for three weeks, was convinced my mother was dying when the minute she left me. And then I wouldn't go to birthday parties without my parents. I would cling to my dad's leg the whole time. I was very clingy on the lap kind of a girl. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think like, you know, you saying kind of this earlier childhood stuff, I'm thinking about it right now going, maybe that's like a little bit of that because I had a lot of separation, a ton of separation anxiety and still do in my life. It comes up every time I'm going to go travel somewhere. I'm like, Oh, I need one more thing. I need a spatula. I'm sure if I get a spatula, In my suitcase, I'll be feel like I'm okay. Everything will be fine. And I'm sure that having a parent who traveled to, I don't know to what extent, like your mom traveled, but certainly I'm guessing that your dad probably a lot, yes. on the road all the time. Yeah. That, that, I think that feeds into that too, or maybe, maybe it sort of 
it, it helps. I don't know if it creates it or if it just sort of like helps it along, but that has to have played a role at some point. Yeah, I think it did. And then I, you know, as a teenager, I was doing a lot of drugs. So I really, I don't, I don't know if the, you know, the drugs were masking it or I would just even blame it on the drugs if I had some of that kind of a feeling. But for me, it was definitely in my twenties. Um, and, uh, it's like, that's scarier to me actually, because when, by the time I was in my twenties, I at being feeling crazy was, was old hat. So I was used to it. This was just the way that I was. And in fact, it was sort of normalized for me in a sense so that I didn't go and get the help that I should have gotten uh, early enough. But uh, to have basically been pretty, you know, um, to not have experienced them and then suddenly experienced it in my early 20s would have freaked me out. Yeah. Like to have felt it out of nowhere. Yeah. And my, you know, it's interesting because my mom did have them in her 20s too. So it is, it, I think there is a genetic thing. It's like we're kind of hardwired for that kind of reaction to it. Um, now I'd love for you to share just a little bit with the audience some of the, like the extent you would go in order to feel safe. Uh, you know, or, or to, to, uh, <laughs> or, or, or what, you know, what you would have to go through in order to cope with being in the real world or trying to function as an, a real world person mm-hmm. and having these symptoms, you know, and sometimes we had to go leave our house and you have these symptoms or sometimes you find a way to stay in your house and convince people of things. Um, you know, what, what were some of the things that you look back on now and go, Wow, I I actually said that and did that and people bought it or yeah, I, or like people didn't buy it and I was pissed, <laughs> even though it was clearly a totally irrational thing to say to another human being. Um, gosh, I would make up the most interesting excuses for why I could not go to my hair salon job. I was a receptionist and I would say the craziest stuff had happened had happened like. Family members had been injured in the most spectacular ways. I think I had about nine grandparents die. Like just the <laughs> lies were so entertaining um, in, in retrospect. And uh, I could totally see why they, you know, they, they canned me finally. Uh, but also I, I would like only – there was a time when I only felt safe going out at night. So during the day I would stay in and I would sleep and I wouldn't go to class. And so the, the number of illnesses I invented to, to tell my teachers about were quite extensive. <laughs> and, um, I would only go out and I felt safe at night and I would sometimes hang out all night at a diner. I was in Boston living on Newbury street and I would, it was, everything was overpriced and there was this one, um, like burrito shack that was open all night that I would go to, or there I would go to, um, the Trident cafe and bookshop, which was open late. And then sometimes in the morning I would wander around. And I remember having been up all night one night and wandering around going to this art supply shop and buying all these art supplies and bringing them back to my house and just sort of painting and doing kind of, I guess, sort of primitive art therapy, um, and, and finger painting and stuff until I fell asleep with paint all over me. So there were, and then I also became afraid of, there was a real kind of call your brothers thing happening where I was uh, afraid of, I don't know what, what their deal was specifically, but my deal was that I was, I, I kept saying, I'm going to take this recycling out. I'm going to take this recycling out. I'm going to take this garbage out. And I just wouldn't. So it just piled up in my apartment and was gross. And, 
I didn't want to go out and, and this was before, I mean, I guess I must have had the internet, but, um, I didn't have, I, I, you know, they didn't, they didn't have like now I know in LA, I know Jen Schwabach loves yummy.com and, mm-hmm. um, and here, you know, we've got fresh direct and all that stuff. And so you can, at least in cities and certainly I'm sure in Boston, they have something like this. Now you can just order your groceries online and they didn't have that at the time. So I wasn't really eating much mm. and I got real skinny. And, you know, when you don't eat, your brain is the first thing to go. And so I, um, I was just pretty gross. I got afraid of using my bathroom. So I wasn't even, I wasn't like showering, first of all, and I wasn't brushing my teeth. And I finally, I would, I never, I always still crapped in the bathroom. That was like my one concession <laughs> to reality. Right. That was where I was at. I was like, the, I will, this will not stand. I will be shitting in a toilet bowl. But, um, but I, was, uh, you know, I, but peeing was different. And so I, and I'm sure there is, I would love to, if I can ever afford it, I would love to go into just some hardcore, like Freudian analysis. Like my, my aunt is, um, is a psychoanalyst in San Francisco. And I would just love to just lay on that couch every day and talk about pooping because <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot there. I, um, so I would, I would pee in like bowls and jars and usually I would wash them out pretty promptly, but Sometimes the shame of having done that was so enormous mm. that um, I would just do – I mean I'm actually um, – my real last name is Donnelly. I'm Irish Catholic on my father's side and Italian Catholic on my mom's side, which is where the Benincasa comes from. And um, so all that that wonderful, wonderful Catholic guilt was like translated to, well, just pretend it's not happening. Yeah. So just kind of like shove the bowl somewhere at, where you can't see it. And, and pee is very odiferous. <laughs> <laughs> So that would really only stand for, you know, a, a few hours to a, sometimes it was a couple days and that would just be quite problematic. And then I would have to wash it out because even I would get too grossed out. But when like that's your level, uh, when that's your level of extreme, yeah. like, well, I mean, I'd wash it out after a couple of days. <laughs> you know, that's just a bad place to be in when you're. 21 years old or, or any age, really. Well, I can't imagine being on my own because in my 20s, when this was going on, I was married, which was part of the problem. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I was in a marriage and actually had a stepson. And um, oh so I had to try to function a little bit. And when for me, it became a driving issue when I, I got a panic attack in my car. And if you're in LA and you don't drive, your life is, you know, pretty much shut down. Oh my God. I know my, um, my best friend, John is moving out to LA shortly to, uh, to work for Conan and he doesn't drive and he's, he's never driven. He's 37 years old. And everyone was like, you have to drive. You have to learn how to drive. You have to learn how to drive. And he was like, no, I don't. I'm a New Yorker. I can walk. I'm going to get a place (laughs) to Luca Lake right by Warner brothers. And what, and then he went out for a few days and came back and was like, I have to learn how to drive. You just have to out there. You just yeah. have to do it. You, yeah, there's there's no walking here. In fact, they give you tickets if they see you walking. They don't like that They're here. They're like, damn, damn you. <laughs> so for me, it was a, uh, my panic attacks happened in the car. And so the agoraphobia thing was I, you know, you, you get this kind of your own personal logic going on, clearly like you had. Like, oh, yeah. I, I can't do the recycling and I'll empty it out in a few days. So I had certain streets that I felt safe to drive on. And certain places I could go, like my therapist's and my mom's house. Oh, okay. Yeah. You had a specific kind of like, um, 
pattern that was okay for you. Yes, on certain streets. But God forbid, if I had to take a right turn or a left turn onto another street, I was positive that the panic would set in. And and here's the thing about panic attacks that I try to explain to people, because when I ended up in my second marriage with my husband, Bob, who's a lovely man now, but when I met him, I was still just recovering from it. It wasn't as bad as it used to be, but they were still there and I'd have them every once in a while. And he's one of those people that is like the picture of mental health, you know, like doesn't have like a bad neuron in his fucking brain. And he would just look at me and like, well, can't you just know that you're not going to die? And I try to explain to people that when you're having a panic attack, (laughs) I swear to God, God himself could come down and say, you're not going to die. And I would look God in the face and say, fuck you. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) It is so true. It's absolutely true. You are so convinced that, that, you know, I mean, you're going to die. Yes. That's going to happen and come hell or high water, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's, and, and, and so, so the recovery coming out of that, um, what, what shifted? I know you, you ended up moving back in with your parents, which for me also, once I revealed to my mom and my dad what was going on, uh, it was really healing for me for some reason. And I know that you ended up turning to your parents. And it's just such a sweet part of your book, like, you know, your parents coming to pick you up and buying you your food. And uh, there's something about that. So what what was that like for you when you started to turn the corner? What, you know, what shifted for you? Or what was the new thing that you had to learn in order to expand your world again? I can remember, uh, you know, I can remember my parents. I can remember very distinctly after my mother had brought me home, after my, my friends, um, I have a friend, Alexandra Fox, who's a really great comedian and improviser out, out in LA. And then my friend Catherine, who is a, a lawyer in Houston now. And, um, they're just still great friends of mine. And they both, you know, contacted my parents and, and told my parents that there was something really wrong with me and that I needed help and they had to come and get me. And so my parents came or my mother came and got me. And I can remember being home and I remember very distinctly at one point um, walking outside, walking down the driveway with my mom and dad. And I was in between them and each one of them was holding my hand. And I'm 21 at this point and walking to the edge of the driveway and then sort of preparing to walk a little bit down the street. It was a lot of, a lot of baby steps. I feel like in a lot of ways I regressed to being a little kid and just sped through, um, the phases of development again. Um, I remember being, you know, again, being 21 and going into their room at night and sitting in bed with them and like watching Letterman or something. Um, and, just really being like sad that they were going to go to sleep because I wanted to stay up and hang out, which is just a fucking ridiculous thing for a 21 year old to feel like, to be like, mom and dad, why are you going to sleep? Let's party. Like, <laughs> like not okay. And I, I also remember during that time I would get this profound feeling of sadness when, um, when nightfall would come because my mornings were the hardest and throughout the day I would work and feel better gradually. And then by the evening I, I almost felt normal. So I could do things like go ride in a car with my, you know, my, my parents or hang out with my brother and his little stoner friends, or he was in high school at the time. And, and I would feel sad when I knew I had to go to sleep because that meant that in the morning, the whole process would start over again. 
And I would leave post-it notes for myself all over the, like the, whatever route I was going to be doing in, in my bedroom and into the bathroom and then into the kitchen, I would leave myself post-it notes like, you can do this. I love you. <laughs> like, this is God. I'll be taking care of everything today. Like just stuff. Awesome. <laughs> stuff that I read about in books. I, I used to read a lot of, uh, uh, the author and artist Sark and, and. Oh yeah, uh, sure. I know Sark. Yeah. Who, her stuff is great. And uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would pick up these little clues, you know, for things to do. And uh, I mean, it was a it was a weird time. It was um, I felt I remember I remember hacking off my hair and being feeling like this fragile baby bird as it grew back in. Mm. Um, But it was a very strange time. Um, And of course, therapy was really key. Yeah. And that thing about being with your parents, because I know for me, part of the healing too was just spending time with my mom. And when I was younger, um, you know, like starting at age four, my mother was a pretty chronic alcoholic until I was 12 years old. And so there were those really precious years where even though she was physically at home, she wasn't emotionally at home and she, you right. know, she had abandoned herself and certainly me. And then in my twenties getting to like, I would just lay on my mom's bed with her and we would just on like Saturdays, we'd watch bowling or, <laughs> or skiing, you know, or something like that. And to this day, like, I think that's, I'm like really addicted to watching universal sports right now and the, the world cup skiing. And when it's on in the morning, sometimes I'd like, I spend an extra hour in bed watching the skiing and I feel like this is my mommy time with me. Oh, so nice. <laughs> That's, you know, and I, and it's so, this is so awesome that we're talking because, not just because I'm getting to like pimp my book to your many listeners, but <laughs> also because, um, I've, I haven't talked to anybody else ever who has gone through this kind of phase where, like you, as an adult, where you had to go back and actually get sort of, it where it became like psychologically therapeutic to be with your parents yeah. and to kind of go through a second childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, I mean, and it's, of course, it's like once I looked back on it, I realized that was what was going on. But, and it was the thing, you know, the thing about control you talk about and, and not feeling safe. And there was something about just being in her presence and being on my mom and dad's bed, like you were saying. It's like, oh, this is the safest place on the planet. You know, it's kind of like safe ground zero. <laughs> And from here, I will learn to move throughout the world on my own. (laughs) It was a lot of baby steps, baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. It really was very much like, um, like, I mean, I I remember watching, gosh, what was that movie? What, uh, what is it? Was it called What About Bob? Yes, yes, yes. Bill Murray. (laughs) I remember seeing that as a kid because I was a kid when it came out and thinking, well, that man's not that crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I just thought, oh, well, that man's not that crazy. That seems perfectly rational to me because I was already, I was like, you know, I mean, it seems like Dreyfus is kind of a a dick here, but Murray's <laughs> fine. Like, what? why would anyone be pissed about that? He seems great. And it wasn't just that he was fun and sort of had this joie de vie that would inspire the family. I literally was like, oh, he needs to do baby steps to get out of his house <laughs> and he has to carry around his fish with him. Okay, exactly. sure. <laughs> That seems super normal to me, even before, you know, I really descended into the depths of crazy. (laughs) Absolutely. So, so you, you clearly you're, 
you know, it's like I talk to people myself in my life and they find out that I was agoraphobic at one point and I had all of this and they look at me and they're like, what? I don't get it. Like, it seems like, and in some ways for me, it feels like 10 lifetimes ago. So here you are now in your life and you're a comedian, you're a radio show host, you're an author, you've got a blog, you're busy, you're funny, you're out in the world. Like what, like, I'd love to know a little bit about like, once you got the major part of it over, you know, and you were healing and you were eating again and you weren't, you know, hiding in the house and stuff like that. What was that like for you, that transition period when you got to discover like who Sarah really is and what she wants to be about on the world, in the world? It was, it was, um, it was a strange time. I guess I didn't really start to figure it out. I went through this wonderful many years of living this wonderful hippie life, um, down in, it started in Jersey, but then, um, down in North Carolina, in Asheville, North Carolina, and then to a lesser extent in, um, out in, in the Southwest where I was doing my, um, my AmeriCorps year as a teacher, but, but it was far more, um, when I was in, in North Carolina, Asheville's just so great. So I had these years of being like, uh, just, you know, being at this college, uh, which was so healing. And I mean, only, it only had, it's called Warren Wilson college. It only has about 800 students Mm. and it is on, uh, I, I used to be work for admissions. So I remember it was on, um, 1100 acres and 300 acres were an organic farm, which had a free range cattle and free range hogs and free range chickens. And, um, we had a milk cow, Lucy, who (laughs) we weren't, we weren't allowed, they weren't allowed to sell her milk. So what they did was they would rent you a Mason jar for a (laughs) dollar and you could go get Lucy milk. And then we would make ice cream out of it. And every single dormitory had um had recycling and composting and we had oh this is crazy kelly we had a i think it was a 10 acre herb garden wow just for herbs and acres and a 10 acres of herbs and then um there was and there was a blacksmithing shack so that students could learn the very important art of blacksmithery (laughs) And the blacksmithing shack was made out of recycled soda bottles. Of course. Of course it was. <laughs> and we had a – there was the regular cafe, which was run by the big you know, Marriott or Corporation, Aramark. And then we had a student-run cafeteria called the Cow Pie Cafe, <laughs> which was all vegan. And we used a lot of Bragg's liquid aminos. Of course, yes. And we had a lot of tahini. And it was – and everything – if there was ever a day when something wasn't vegan, it was labeled. And it would be a little problematic, but <laughs> we would deal with it. And a lot of the food that they served there came from the herb garden. And then upstairs, they – one uh, there would be like once a year when they would slaughter the animals. Wow. And so – we would have, um, you know, we would have this like, we would eat, like eat animals that we had hung out with actually. <laughs> that you had named. <laughs> like I looked in your eyes. And so we, so that's where I was. And, um, 
you know, that was just, I mean, what talk about a place, a lot, there were a lot of students there who had previously like been, there were a lot of students who'd been institutionalized for one reason or another. So it was really, even though I never was, you know, in um, an inpatient program, I, I was surrounded by people who were like trying to live sober in this hippie haven or who were, um, had, you know, had psychological problems too. So it was just this dream world. Like it was, oh, and you went to downtown Asheville and people were just walking around barefoot, man. Cause hmm. why not? <laughs> and, uh, so I, I think that's where I, I mean, I just, I love it. Um, and I think that's where I started to feel whole again, really. I mean, that, that, that college was, it was the kind of place where when you, if you, if you went to the, um, the infirmary, which was the wellness center, um, you could get like, like, let's say you were having lady issues. Mm-hmm. You could get like Diflucan, an antibiotic to clear up the lady issues, or they would teach you about the garlic cure or, wow. you know, yogurt. Nice. Um, <laughs> not kidding. It was great. It was nuts. It was so much fun. So that, that, I mean, I, it was like this womb that I got to crawl yes, into. Yes. Half years. Yes. And then after that came the sort of reality of, of trying to work as a high school teacher and then moving to New York to get my master's degree and being, I, I loved my college, teacher's college at Columbia, but, um, but I didn't really like the actual work of teaching high school. And I was like, shit, this was supposed to be my calling. What am I going to do? And and then I kind of fell into stand-up comedy while I was in grad school. Well, I think you probably got a little um, vibe at Teachers College because Teachers College is on the same block that my dad grew up in. Uh, oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah, West 121st Street between Amsterdam oh. and Broadway. Oh, my God, that's nuts. Did they, they, so they must have knocked down the the um, the building that he lived in. No, or did it's they still there. It? It's still there. It's called the Miami. Oh, my God, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. I must have gotten like I must have felt his spirit and just been like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do stand up. <laughs> Yeah. Even though he was still very much with us when uh, when um when I was in grad school, so it must have been like his childhood spirit. Yes, like that's what it was. And, right. And throwing spitballs at someone. <laughs> yes, and stealing money out of people's cars and shit like yeah. that. He was a little bit I was of like, a... I want to be like that kid. I want to be a hooligan. <laughs> I do remember when I was really lonely living in the Southwest, um, doing uh doing the AmeriCorps program and just had been dumped very righteous, very in in a very right way. Like I really applaud his move. It was absolutely the right thing to do but I'd been dumped by this boyfriend I thought I was going to get married to and I was so sad and so lonely and I think that's when the seeds of me actually um, becoming a comedian were planted because I would go to Blockbuster and I would rent um, I would just go to the comedy section and I started renting comedians concerts like your dad's and Margaret Cho's and um, Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock and, and Bill Hicks and even like some old 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 old, old Lenny Bruce stuff and, you know, I didn't think of it as a possible career for me. It was just like I was just so depressed that it, it would help kind of lift me up. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I was just talking to someone on Twitter yesterday who was saying like, like my dad in particular, but in general, like, you know, how comedy has kept them from like, you know, shooting themselves in the head, you know, I mean, you know, oh, met, God, met, yeah. met, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's like it's instant mental health, you know, in this funny, strange way. But uh so it's it's interesting because um so you went and got your masters and everything and then 
So how did you, because I too got my master's in psychology and I yeah. was, you know, feeling like, and this was um, in 2004 is when I graduated with my thesis and all of that. But, and it was like, oh, this is great. I've like found this track. And uh, although I knew I always wanted to be a writer performer and I was storytelling before that and stuff, but I'd kind of given up on showbiz in some ways and just didn't know how to find my own way. But, you know, after I got my master's in psychology and then I realized, oh, shit, the writer-performer thing's not going away. Like, I yeah. can't I can't pretend. And it's that awkward moment where you go to your parents and you're like, hi, yeah, I know I have a master's now, but. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. I totally, I, I absolutely understand what you're saying. <laughs> I, I was at one, I sort of, I eventually finished my master's, but I it, it dragged it out for a few years because at one point I had a, um, I was in class with a girl who had worked at Comedy Central in the talent department and she had quit because she wanted to make a difference in the world. And I was sort of done making a difference out of like a brief year of making a difference. <laughs> and Sharon, it was Caroline. And she said to me, you know, why don't, you know, you're funny. I don't think you're happy as a teacher, but you're funny in class. Why don't you try stand up comedy? And I was like, I, what are you talking about? That's crazy. I wouldn't even know how to do that. And so she kind of showed me the ropes. And the first people I met in New York in comedy were, um, were Joanne and Anne, who are the, <laughs> they're the heads of, um, of, they're the heads of talent, the East Coast talent for Comedy Central. So I just thought that's how it was. I was like, oh, you just get introduced to you know, <laughs> the VP of talent at Comedy Central by your friend. That's how you start doing comedy. And uh, of course, that actually is not how it works. You actually have to do work. But um, <laughs> damn, it was a uh, damn. But I, I was like, so I get to be on TV now, right? And they were like, no, but you can have a margarita and that'll be fine. Um, but you know, it, it, uh, it was, my parents were kind of like, oh, I mean, my mom is very sort of almost pathologically supportive to the point where <laughs> I could have become a serial killer, but it just, <laughs> it, instead I did this, which arguably is just as bad. But, um, but, uh, no, I, she was really into it. My dad was not, but he was not, he was not not into it. He just would say, well, you can do, you know, writing and um, comedy on the side. And I hated that. I don't want to do it on the side. I want to, you know, I want to paint my picture in the clouds and trip. I, want, I was like, I want to float in a soap bubble. Um, that's what I want to do professionally. But um, when it started to change really for my dad was when I started making money at it. Mm -hmm. And that was when it was a a concrete thing. And you know, I don't, I don't make all my money off of performing. I travel and perform and, um, and I, you know, I have this book and I blog for a bunch of different websites. And then I also work as an editor at a website here in, in New York. So I'm um, mostly, you know, it's pretty evenly split between like traveling and performing and, uh, freelance writing. But even that, I think, I don't think that he was comfortable with the idea of me doing anything that involves the term freelancing. He really didn't <laughs> yes. like that. He, even when we were growing up, he'd get pissed and, and he and my mom, he and my mom both would get pissed. And, uh, if my brother and I like, you know, did something not the way they wanted, they'd be like, what are you freelancing? What is this? Um, Don't freelance. That's funny. And now I'm like, well, I fill out a lot of tax forms, but was, um, <laughs> yes, I get it. was it, do you think that because your dad is a performer and came up in the business that he didn't want you to be a part of it? Yeah. He, he really, you know, he loved the, the masters in psychology because he knew that was a solid plan B, you know, and he always would say, 
have a plan B. And I'm never quite sure what his plan B was because he just kind of had a plan, which was become a DJ, become a stand-up, and then become a comedic actor. He wanted to be like Danny Kaye. So never quite got the conversation from him of like, oh, what were you going to do, Daddy? Like, were you going to be a a welder? Was that your plan B? Never heard that version of his. Um, And he specifically really did not want me going into stand-up comedy because he was just very protective. I mean, a being in the shadow of him, he knew that was probably fucked up. And, and then of course he knew that like the comedy club circuit, even though he didn't come up in it, he knew that it was, uh, you know, like the fifth ring of hell, basically. It's so toxic. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's just bad for people emotionally, physically. It's really, I, I understand now why comics are so down on comedy because it's just, it's a terrible profession. <laughs> yeah. Terrible, terrible. It's not a terrible profession. It's a terrible lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, and my dad knows how sensitive I am. I mean, he really, you know, I'm, I'm one of those sensitive humans. I mean, people who get agoraphobia are. And yeah. We, are. yeah. And he just, I think he just really was very protective. And of course, some part of me always took the message of like, oh, I'm not funny. I'm not talented. Is that what you think? And of course, he laughed at, you know, my jokes all the time and was always just so pleased by me. But, uh, but I took it the other way. Um, but you know, when you have a need to do this stuff, you can't really stop yourself. And you, you, you know, if you want to, if you're a person who needs to express themselves, and you don't, then that creates mental health issues. And definitely that, that squelched creativity can come out in everything from like irritable bowel syndrome to sudden fits of rage to backaches to all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting and and depression too. You know, I find that it's, it's really connected to that. But, and then of course, per- writing and performing creates all sorts of other mental health challenges like anxiety. And <laughs> it's sure. so weird. Oh, I have to tell you, I've been struggling with, with this whole, the book is coming out on Valentine's Day. It's available for pre-order now. Aurora yes. Vagless. <laughs> but it's, um, it's coming out on Valentine's Day. And it really is a bit of a roller coaster. And it's like, you know, we were, I was thinking, oh, maybe this one, you know, big fancy magazine will review the book. And then they didn't review it. And I was like, oh, I'm so sad that they didn't review it. And my friends had pointed out, like, dude, you know, they could have reviewed it and said that it sucked. Like, this is not, this isn't the end of the world. Like, so that this fancy magazine that you like didn't review your book. Like, calm down. And it just helps to have that, that kind of sometimes that tough love helps because you just when you're a sensitive little baby bird like we are it's not that we're not tough people I mean we're we're great in a crisis and we'll you know (laughs) defend our friends till the end and all that it's it's you know but but waiting there's so much approval in this business like just waiting like oh I have a I have a meeting with this agent um I hope um or I have is this person going to see me or is, and there's so many no's. There's so much, Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Tom Cruise's people are really interested and his cousin's 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 cousin (laughs) is really extra interested and might show up when you do five minutes at the hot in Cincinnati. Like it's just so, it's so nutty. You're, you're building. It's a gamble. It's a wild. It's a huge gamble. It is. And you can't, you can't look down. You know, mm-hmm. you have to keep looking straight, look where you're going, uh, keep your big balance pole in your hands. 
<laughs> yeah. feel, feel where the wire is underneath your feet. I was, um, I opened the show uh, sharing with the audience because I've had one of those roller coaster weeks where Monday and Tuesday, I just wanted to have a cave days and just watch skiing all day. Yes. Um, and, uh, and then yesterday morning got a call that the New York Times wanted to talk to me because my Sirius XM show is premiering this Sunday. Oh, kick ass. That's awesome. What channel are you going to be on? Uh, it's going to be on Sundays, the first Sunday that's going to be on this Sunday and then the first Sunday of every month on the Raw Dog channel. On comedy. Oh, that's so awesome. Very excited. And then, and then it'll be played on our channel, which is called Carlin's Corner, which is 24-7, my dad. And oh, I didn't know they had Carlin's Corner. Yeah, you can get it online and you can get it on the new devices. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I worked for them for two years for Cosmo Radio. That's right. You did. Was- yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome that they have you. Oh, that's so cool. I, I know. And I'm so excited. So I've been in this like New York Times bubble for the last 24 hours and it actually comes out in print tomorrow and I'm going to go and buy the paper and, and, oh, and, you know, and you get, and you get caught up in the excitement part of it. And then I was warning the audience. It's like, yeah, well, I'll be crashing soon. Trust me. <laughs> yes. Because that's, it's, it's, I'm saying yes, not like, yes, I hope this happens for you. It's just, I'm, <laughs> I'm like affirming that I, I, I relate to what you're saying because it's just such a thrill. You think, oh, I got to do this cool TV thing or, oh, wow, it was, I was in this, this magazine or this thing that I'm excited about is in a newspaper. Wow. And, and you really do have that high. But then there's the, as high as you go can sometimes be. Yeah. Sometimes be. Sometimes. As low as you go. Now, not necessarily if you like the fact that you're aware of it means that you you crashing will probably I mean I don't know you all have to say but I'm guessing you crashing will probably just be realizing you're kind of bored at a certain point like oh there's yeah. nothing this yeah. exciting thing isn't happening right now exactly and and the other thing too is that I've found with this roller coaster crazy business is you do have to learn to be detached to the outcome and really just be in love with what's happening in the moment and know that it's all temporary and yet, you know, the same time as this, you, you know, you, you, there's nothing wrong with being excited and having some joy in your life and, and buying into it a little bit. It's when you unconsciously buy into it and let it define you. And, you know, and the ego wants to do that. It wants to glom on pretty quickly and go, okay, now I'm safe. Now I've got it made. Everything will be fine now. And I then, have made it. Absolutely. Right. And then two weeks later, it's like, well, I only got 10 new Twitter followers this week. What's yes! wrong with me? <laughs> or like, or even worse, like I lost a few. Yes! Were they robots right. or were they people? And what's wrong with me? Like, exactly. oh, and then sometimes I'll go, I'll have these feelings like, do I think too much? Yes, of course you think too much. <laughs> if you're fucking thinking about thinking. Yes. You think too much. One reason that I, I enjoy listening to, um, I'm doing Marin's podcast soon and I like listening yes. to Marin's podcast because for a lot of reasons, but because of just the strain of, of just unhappiness that runs <laughs> yes. through so, so much of it because you hear these comics come on. And, and one thing I, I love about, about, about Mark is that he just, you know, I don't know him personally, but I, at first I found his commitment to talking about his own insecurities abrasive and now i actually i appreciate it so much because i'm like oh it, it gives me a win to win here's a guy who i look at as you know who i look up to as a as a more successful comic and i envy some things that he has and and he's pissed about things still yes. and so are these other people who come on the show like there's people come on there and cry and I they're know. just bitter and sad and and i'm like 
it, it's, you know, I'm like, I'm not happy that they feel that way, but I, I'm like, oh, it's just an affirmation. This is a crazy business. It attracts crazy people and it drives us crazy. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And I'm always, I mean, it's, you know, one of the reasons I love having this podcast is because this is the conversation I love to have because it's like, I think it's, you know, no matter what business you're in, no matter where you are, I think living in Western civilization right now and in America in particular, it's, there's so much bells and whistles and shiny things and, uh, you know, promises and, uh, you know, it's the Wizard of Oz and if we just believe enough mm-hmm. and it's all that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of illusion and then there's this a huge amount of reality that we don't deal with. And, and so it's always a balance between those, those two kind of poles of life. And, and I think what it is in show business is that's just kind of literally ramped up to 11. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's right there in front of you. Yeah, it's like the you know the the roller coaster is a really it's a real it's like a, not an e ticket ride it's like a freaking you know z ticket ride in in this business. Absolutely, yeah. it's, and it's also it's all, one thing that's I think we're often raised. I don't know, maybe maybe the kids today are raised differently because you know they live in the era of they've they've never not lived in the era of reality television where just normal quote unquote people become famous for like yes. doing nothing but um I, it'll be interesting to see if that's you know if, if this perspective changes but i think most of us were raised to believe that the world is a meritocracy and that if you work hard and you do the right thing and you you're good at whatever you do that that means that you get to be you know successful um and 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 entertainment, whether we're talking about, you know, whether we're talking about dancing or music or comedy or, or acting or what have you, it's really not a meritocracy. It's if if you are the kind of person who gets really jealous when someone who just started gets a big thing, then you're going to be upset all the time. <laughs> True. I was just, you know, I was hearing about, I, um, about the auditions for the Just for Laughs Festival at Montreal. And, and one, there were some auditions in New York. And, and I said, somebody said, Oh, yeah, you know, I watched them. And I said, Oh, how did it go? And they said, Well, this one person did, I'm really great. And I'd never heard of him. They said, Oh, he's, he's kind of new. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. And then they said, This other person did really great. And I said, Oh, and I knew the other person. And I said, He's been doing comedy for 20 years. Like he just got, he just got an audition for this, like an audition. Like right. this is the first time I think this person's auditioning and he's incredibly talented and awesome. And, it, and, but is he any more, you know, talented and awesome in the eyes of whoever is judging him than the person who just started? Maybe, maybe not. Cause it's really not a merit. It's, it's not like a I mean, meritocracy is not the word. It's, it's not the amount of time you put in, I guess right. is what I'm going to say. Right. Yeah, it's, it's true. And on some level, I mean, it is a crazy time in that way. Um, and yet I do believe that ultimately the cream does rise because even though people do can be entertained by funny kitty cat videos, um, I think overall people do look for quality on some level. And I think you do have to be good at what you do. And, and, and like, you're right. I mean, it's never really been a meritocracy. I mean, it's always been a business, first of all. Mm-hmm. And if someone thinks they can make money off of you and shape you, then, I mean, it's the age old story, then, you know, you, you will also rise to the top. But, um, 
I, yeah, I, it's really gotten complicated, hasn't it? I mean, the, the reality shows and all of these contest shows. I mean, I'm a huge like music contest show. Like I guilty pleasure, American Idol, The Voice, all that kind of stuff, because there are people out there who just have not been discovered. There's so much talent out there and it's exciting, yeah, exciting. when yeah. people get exposed and they actually do get what they deserve. Um, uh, so that's kind of exciting stuff, but. But yeah, you know, it's, it is fascinating. And the whole, you know, the whole thing about the kids these days, one of the things I have a friend who runs a production company and when she hires 20 somethings, she finds out a lot that these 20 somethings don't understand that, um, not everyone's going to love you 24 hours a day and you're not going to get a little gold star next to your name every day. Yeah. You don't get a Facebook <laughs> like. And, and that you, there's actually a consequence when you do bad work and it's called getting fired. And yeah. she finds that a lot that people just kind of expect things. There's a lot of, you know, kind of just expectation that the people are going to be treated well. And it drives her crazy because we came up in a world where you did, you worked your ass off and you paid your dues. You paid and your you dues. And you were terrified like going into, I mean, you know, if you had any sense about you, you were scared going in for that that job interview that you really, really wanted with that amazing company that you really wanted to work for because you knew that you had to perform well in that interview and that then if you got the job, oh my gosh, like you, it, it reminds me of that, that movie, um, oh, with Kevin Spacey swimming with sharks oh. where he just treats his assistants so horribly. And that's an, a very exaggerated, I think for, for most people, but uh, you know, that's that story of like, you, you know, you get shit on, you get shit on, you get shit on, and, and then you get to be the one who shits on other people. Like that sort of, <laughs> I was kind of understood to be the way of the force for a long time. And now I don't think it is because there's this idea that you could just go on a, on some random reality show and be, <laughs> Famous all of a sudden. Right. For being an asshole, which is lovely. Mm -hmm. I just find that to be so lovely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm really curious. I want to find out about how, um, how you, because I know there's a lot of listeners out there who are writers and are always interested in getting published. How did that come about for you? Like, how did you pitch your book? How much did you write of it in order to pitch it? Did you write a treatment? Did you write chapters? Like, how did that, uh, what was the journey for you in that? Well, so we, uh, I, in, I used to write a sex and dating blog for nerve.com. And I also did this web series, which used to be called Tub Talk with Sarah B, where I would interview people like Jonathan Ames and Andy Borowitz and, and different, um, different comedians, Reggie Watts for, um, nerve.com. And then later I just, I took it with me when I left nerve and I just put it on YouTube and called it getting wet with Sarah B. And so it's me in a bathtub with like Margaret Cho and Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer and, um, um, all these different James Urbaniak from, uh, Venture Brothers and from a number of great films. And so just these different people who I interviewed, um, in, in the bathtub and, my agent, who was not my agent at the time, his name's Scott Mendel, had gotten past a video of me interviewing Jonathan Ames in a bathtub. And then he went and Googled and looked at my stuff and, and saw that I was a writer. And so he emailed me and said, you know, have you ever considered writing a book? And of course, since I was a little kid, I wanted to write a book. That was always the end goal was to write a book. I didn't know what kind of book, but <laughs> to write a book that would, that would mean that I had made it and would be rich clearly. And so I was like, yes. So that was in 2008 and we worked on one 
treatment that didn't sell. It was just a little humor, jokey treatment. And then we, um, in 2009, I started workshopping a show called Agora Fabulous, where I would just have a, a list of bullet points of stories that I wanted to tell. And I would just get on stage and tell them. And it was different every night. I never had a script and I just would play with it. And I did that because I wanted to write a book proposal. I wanted to write a nonfiction book proposal. And I knew I would need sample chapters, but I also knew I would need to really have um, a whole outline for the whole book in addition to telling them like, yes, I can, I, I can be trusted to, um, to pimp this book in various ways. And yes, I can be trusted to advertise it. And yes, I, there are people I can get to blurb it for me and things like that. So, um, from 2009 or like early 2009 through early 2010, we worked on the book proposal and then sent it out early 2010 and then sold it in April of 2010. And then I had a year to finish it, um, and finished it in 2011. Like, and then of course you go, I handed it in, in the spring, but then and you go back and forth a bunch of times with all the different edits and everybody looks at it. And so by the time it actually was done, done, which is, it's even, it's really similar to the version that you got, but mm -hmm. it's actually, there are some things that are tweaked a little bit. Um, so from like the galley stage to the final stage, I think we finally had finished copy. Like we had a manuscript for the finished copies, I think in like October of 2011. And for the final, final manuscript and then got finished copies, um, the actual hard copies in January. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it took a long time and it's different for everybody. Um, if I had had a clearer idea of what I wanted to write when Scott and I first got together, I, I think I could have banged it out more quickly. Right. And like now I'm thinking about doing, uh, we're shopping around a second book, um, which is, a young adult novel that is based on the great Gatsby, but it's set among teenagers on long Island and Gatsby is a girl, oh. <laughs> um, but Daisy Buchanan is also that that character is still a girl. So it's like, there's definitely some sapphic teen obsession happening. Oh, and so we're shopping around this other book and generally for that, for fiction, you have to write the whole damn thing, but we're trying to sell it on a partial, which is when you write, uh, I wrote like a, you know, a 24 page outline and mm -hmm. 46 pages of the actual book and then a bunch of character summaries and all this other stuff. So, um, so that's how, that's how that happened in a very roundabout way. Wow. Wow. So, so you sold your book qu pretty quickly though, once you pretty went, quickly. Yeah, you did. Yeah. It was within about, I'd say we sold it within four to six weeks. It was real quick. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And it, it's funny because I, about a year ago, had pitched an idea for a book, basically my memoir, and, um, and only pitched it one place, uh, because we'd had, I had a relationship with them already and never really heard back from them, which was kind of interesting. And now I've got a, I've also have a solo show that I'm just about to start touring and. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And so it is, it's different now that I've written the show and it's up and I've been working on it with Paul Provenza for the last six months extensively, really working the themes and figuring oh, it out and honing, 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 as you know. Um, now I really know what the book is. It's like, I kind of get that, like, I probably didn't sell the book last year because I really didn't know what the book was yet. And this process has really helped me figure out the, the three or four really big themes in it that I need to focus on 
And obviously, uh, the book would be, you know, much more in depth and longer than my show. But, but now I have like the scaffolding, like you said, I've got a yes. big outline for it. And I, and I have some sample chapters already. So I'm excited this year. I'm hoping to go out and, uh, pitch my book about town and, uh, and get this puppy done finally. I'm sure, I'm sure you will because the, the great thing about that is that you can also invite like editors who are interested or even if you're looking for like a lit agent, lit agents who are interested or whatever, you can invite them to see you live and fall in love with you live. Yep. And then look at your manuscript if, if you want to. Yeah. Um, I found it to be a really great, um, a really great tool for selling the book was to actually do the show because when they, walk in and there's uh, a room full of people, even if it's a little black box theater and it's, you know, 50 people, if you can pack it out, then that, you know, that, that shows them like, Oh, well, she can sell, she can sell things. Right. She can sell a book. <laughs> we love people who can sell things. Yeah. When are you, when do you go on tour? Uh, well, we're just starting. I'm doing some local gigs here in LA. I'm going to be at South by Southwest in March. I just did the sketch fest in San Francisco. Oh, nice. You're going to, are you going to be at South by Southwest, um, in for the interactive portion? Yes. I'll be Me there too. the first weekend. I'll be doing. Me too. Oh, we get to go hang. Yeah, we can hang out. That'll be awesome. And you can see my show. That'll be so cool. Oh, I would love to see your show. So yeah, I'm doing that. And then I just got signed by an agency and we're just getting a sizzle reel together and all of that. So, you know, things are things are unfolding really nicely. And I'm hoping to, you know, travel to all the markets where my dad traveled and meet all of his fans and his fans will love the show. It's called a Carlin Home Companion. And oh my God, I love it. Thank you. And uh, yeah, and I play videos of my dad and weave them into this very, very personal story of my family and my relationship with my father starting in 1960 when my parents met all the way up until my dad's death so oh that's so cool i see i want to see it like not just because i i have talked to you now but I've, if i just heard oh there's a show touring it's called a carlin home companion and kelly carlin does it i'd be like oh okay i'm going yeah it's exciting and um you know it's fun because i get to meet my dad's fans and they get to f- experience this whole other side of my family and my father and, you know, they get to fall in love with him in a whole different level, which I, which I love because for me, that's part of the purpose of it is to just say, here's the whole man. And this is, you know, here's the whole human being that I knew. So, and it's one of those ones where it's a freaking roller coaster. It's like your book. It's like a fucking roller coaster. You laugh, you cry, you're terrified and you're happy. <laughs> I to see it. That's so cool. So you'll be at. You'll be at South by Southwest the first weekend, which for people who are listening is uh, Friday, March 9th, Saturday, March 10th, and Sunday, March 11th. Do you know what your dates are? Yet? I believe my uh, show will be on Saturday, uh, March 10th, and it'll be the latest uh, slot around 5.30, 5 or 5.30, so I can go my full hour and a half and do my show. So Good. I can, I can totally make it because my thing is on uh, the previous day. This is oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll come in early so I can come see your thing. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a panel. I'm doing a, um, a panel on March 9th called, I think it's called The Internets Are Leaking, Political Humor 2.0. And it's me, um, comedian Greg Proops. Oh, I love um, Greg. He's a good friend. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm excited to meet him. I've never met him before. He's going to be there. And, um, uh, the Daily Show executive producer Rory Albanese and Huffington Post comedy editor Carol Hartzell and then um, uh, Alf Lamont, who until recently was with the Comedy Store, now is like an independent kind of consultant for different comedy industry things. And we're going to, I think, talk about political satire on um, on the Internet. So I think it'll be fun. Oh, that'll be fabulous. Yeah. Uh, Rory actually is uh, someone helping us with we're trying to get West 121st Street, uh, that block, that 500 block renamed in my dad's 
honor. And Rory's one of the people who's supporting our efforts to do that. So oh, that would be so awesome. Yes. And we're, we're, we're we've, we've uh, hit up against the priest uh, at Corpus Christi, which is ironic because that's where my father grew up and went to school. But the priest. Wait, I heard about this. There's some priest who's like, George yes. Carlin is the devil. He believes that if pe- little children, uh, who live in New York City, uh, look up and see a sign with the name George Carlin on it, they're going to immediately go home and Google my father and they're going to learn the seven dirty words. <laughs> wow, that's real. I'm glad he's focusing on that instead of cleaning up the corruption and, you know, child abuse happening know, it's, in the, it's so- the enormous ancient corporation for which he works. That's yes. good. And I like that he's living in a real world where these children have not been exposed to this language except when they seem the sign that my father's name will be on and then they Google him. They will then learn how to say the word shit. They've never heard it because they've never heard hip hop music ever. Ever. Listen to that in the city. Ever. So, oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, isn't he great? Yeah. So, well, darling, we have to go. I thank you so much. I'm looking so forward to a hanging out with you at Southwest, and um, and I feel like you and I have parallel lives. So, um, I'm guessing we are going to be uh, hanging out together in the future, and uh, and probably, hopefully, I would love to work with you sometime and have some fun and do some silly shit. Yeah, this is awesome, Kelly. Thank you so much. This has really put me in a good mood. I was in I was in the low point of the roller coaster day, and this really put me in a good, a much better mood. Good, excellent. So, everyone, uh, Sarah's book is out on Tuesday, Valentine's Day. It's called Agora Fabulous, and it's Sarah Benincasa, B E N I N C A S A. I highly recommend it. If you're agoraphobic, you must read it. A. Yeah, you, you have no excuse. You have no you're excuse. Home. And if you want to just laugh your ass off at uh, someone going through to hell and back, please read it because uh, you will. You'll laugh and you'll learn a lot about us crazy, sensitive people. So good luck with it, Sarah. Have a blast on your tour and 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 hyping your book and doing all your interviews. Have fun with it. Thanks so much, Kelly. Have a great night. All right, sweetie. Bye. So, uh, fabulous, Sarah. That was great. She's really cool. I do want to hang out with her. I wish she lived in LA here. We'd invite her over and we could party. We'll have to just party when we get to New York and Austin. Oh my God, I'm going to Austin, Texas. It's crazy fun. Uh, so everyone, let's see. I have to get my document out here and see what the hell am I needing to talk about now? Okay. Well, we know what we need to talk about. Um, if you're a serious XM person, please tune in 7 p.m. Eastern time this Sunday on Raw Dog for my interview with Robin Williams. You're going to love this conversation. And if not, hey, you know, serious online. It's not that expensive. I think it's like nine, ten bucks a month or something. And you get a hundred gazillion channels, uh, which I love. I love my serious. Um, what else is going on? Uh, next week, we're going to have, uh, Kamel, Kamel Nanjani's coming in. And uh, very excited about that. And hopefully it'll happen because I have to tell you guys something. I have jury duty next week. So if I suddenly don't appear on the air, it's because I'm I'm on a jury probably. Oh, my God. Please, no, God. I don't want to do this. So uh, but Kumail's coming next week. And um, the following week, my friend Charles Freericks is coming, who's an amazing storyteller. And his new book is out. And you don't know who he is. And you're going to discover a great writer. And I'm very excited about that. Um, you can always check me out on Twitter, Kelly 
underscore Carlin. Find me on Facebook. Please visit my website and please donate to the show here and support this independent broadcasting. This is not funded by Sirius XM. This is funded by my dogs, Stella and Ned, and they don't have any money. They have lots of snacks and they're always eating them. Uh, so we appreciate any uh, anything you want to do to support this uh, this podcast and support what we do here. And I want to thank Logan Heftel for hanging out here and uh, doing my knobs, which my husband would be very upset that I just said that. And I want to thank everyone at Smodcast who always makes this thing run smoothly and knows exactly what to do on the other end of the magic part where it all goes out onto the internets and the tubes. And I want to thank Kevin Smith and, uh, and uh, enjoy. Enjoy your weekend. Have fun. And uh, we're going to go out with a little song. Uh, let's see. We're going to do another Carrie Cooper song, I think. Oh, this is a cute one, too. It's called uh, Jimmy Stewart. Enjoy. It's a wonder that I never tried to marry Jimmy Stewart Just so he'd lasso me the moon I've always been a little too romantic Get my hopes up Get my heart broke way too soon Life's never quite as happy as they make it in the movies Even though I wish it were that way Don't you ever want to ride off in the sunset A girl can dream That's all I'm trying to say Do-do-do John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara and the time he dragged her by the hair. She hollered like she didn't like it, but I saw her smile. Love's a complicated affair. Some days I really want to be the girl that thinks she's leaving just to hear the boy beg her to stay. Maureen O'Hara needed John Wayne to fight for her. I need you, that's all I'm trying to say. And dress like a woman I'd be your Marilyn Monroe Who knows, maybe it would be hot I doubt it, but at least I'd enjoy the show Like Marilyn and Tony, things can get a little wacky And I wonder when we'll ever find our way Well, it's you and me to the end I love you, that's all I'm trying to say Do-do-do Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do